Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The air was sticky, hot, and humid in St. Petersburg, Florida. The normally quiet town buzzed with the sounds of America's favorite pastime, baseball. 1939's spring training was well underway, and nowhere was the excitement more palpable than at the New York Yankees' facilities. Fans clamored to get a look at the reigning world champs. They included Joe DiMaggio, Vernon Lewis, Lefty Gomez, and none other than the Iron Horse himself, Lou Gehrig. Gehrig was excited to be back for another year. It was a chance to extend his regular season starting streak. After more than 2,000 games straight, Gehrig meant to finish his career on top. But as the spring season wore on, he felt off. He was getting fatigued easily, and his once formidable batting power was gone. Each time he stepped up to the plate, he relaxed his grip on the bat. He kept his eye locked on the pitcher. As the ball shot through the air, he tracked its path toward the strike zone. He cocked his arms back and swung. He regularly made perfect contact, but what should have been a line drive was instead a soft blooper that landed just beyond the infield. 35-year-old Gehrig couldn't figure out what was wrong. Sure, he was getting older, but his routine hadn't changed since last season. He couldn't have lost his edge over the course of one winter, could he? He didn't know it yet, but he'd been struck by a little understood, incredibly rare illness, and it was about to get worse. Gehrig only had a few games left in his career, and in a matter of months, he'd have to say goodbye to baseball forever. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. 
You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. ALS is a condition in which a person gradually loses control of their muscles until they become completely immobile and die. This week, we'll explore the history of the illness and how it was discovered. We'll also look at the most common symptoms and explore how ALS went from an obscure disease to one of the most well-known ailments in the world. Next week, we'll take a deep dive into the search for a cure. We'll also explore the mysterious relationship between military service and a heightened risk for ALS. Prior to 1865, a patient who we'll call Marie checked herself into a hospital. She suffered tremors in her extremities and her tongue wouldn't stop twitching. Marie was quickly assessed and put in with the rest of the women at the P.T. Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. Orderlies took Marie down the hall to a ward for neurology patients. They thought Marie's was just another case of hysteria, a psychological condition that only affected women. The doctors couldn't treat or cure hysteria. Marie was beyond help. All they could do was give her a place to live out her days, separated from the wider world. As Marie marched to her new home, the smell of decay filled the halls of the overcrowded hospital. It was one of the largest facilities in France, but its reputation had long been tarnished. This was a place that many feared. Everyone in Paris knew that before the 19th century, being admitted into the Salpetriere was nothing less than a death sentence. Those who went in rarely came out, and those who were released were often worse off than when they'd arrived. Medicine was far from where it needed to be, but a few bright young physicians were changing the way things were done. Men like Jean-Martin Charcot. He'd grown up exploring the streets of Paris with his brothers. He was one of four boys from a modest middle-class household, and he'd overcome great adversity. While everyone in his family had ambitions, their father only had enough money to send one of his sons to university. To ensure that he was making a sound investment, he made the boys compete with one another. It was the only way to know who was the most worthy of an advanced education. As a child, Jean-Martin Charcot got his hands on a few anatomy books written in Italian. He was a fast learner and an astute observer. Soon, he was fluent in French, English, German, and Italian, which allowed him to read works from all over the world. He was determined to get an edge on his brothers. When he was a teenager, he developed an interest in medicine, and by the time he was 18, he'd proven himself. His father agreed to send him to college. In 1843, Charcot enrolled at the University of Paris. There, like everywhere else, Charcot excelled. He was passionate and studious. He had a singular focus. 
he was going to learn as much as he could about the human body. Though he may have been permanently influenced by his survival of the fittest upbringing, Charcot was often abrasive and didn't make friends easily. But it was apparent to everyone he came in contact with that he was brilliant. He focused on the field of pathology, or the study of how people are affected by disease. Pathologists try to understand how illnesses are caused because they believe that's the best way to find a cure. 23-year-old Charcot had finished a portion of his medical education in 1848. He accepted an internship offer from the Salpetriere. He was familiar with the hospital's reputation. He'd grown up in the area and knew its history. The large building hadn't always been a hospital. In fact, when it was first built, it had been a gun factory used to house large caches of gunpowder. But years later, in the 1600s, it had been converted into a prison and hospice for women. The hospital was supposed to offer hospice care, but the quality was poor in the years prior to Charcot's internship. Patients were sleeping on straw mattresses and rarely received proper medical care. Charcot called it that grand asylum of human misery. Charcot wanted to do something to change the Salpetriere. Even though he was only an intern, he brought his passion and singular focus with him. He was going to learn everything he could from every patient he saw and change their circumstances. During that period of medical advancement, doctors were noting a certain mysterious neurological illness. The condition made patients jerk around and spasm, seemingly at random. They grew weak over time, unable to move except for the periodic involuntary twitches. Nobody knew what caused it. Charcot wanted to investigate neurological research further, but as the least senior medical professional, he had little to say in his work. So he had to bide his time. While other interns were excited to leave when their terms were up, Charcot resolved to return as soon as he could. He wanted to get a better look at that mystery ailment, but he'd have to wait a few more years. Charcot spent the next decade bouncing around different hospitals in France. He became known in the medical community for taking methodical notes on all of his patients. These went beyond the usual lists of basic symptoms. He wrote down every minute detail that could possibly relate to a patient's condition. This type of documentation laid the groundwork for what was known as the anatomoclinical method. This was a system that featured two equally important parts. First, Charcot kept incredibly detailed records of every patient's symptoms while they were alive. Second, when that patient passed away, Charcot would perform an autopsy. The thorough notes were crucial to his findings. Prior to the post-mortem exam, Charcot didn't always know what exactly to look for. He didn't want to get so distracted with big and noticeable symptoms that he missed a small but telling tick. So he wrote down everything, and in the process, discovered a lot of key symptoms that his colleagues had missed. Thanks to his findings, Charcot's star rose in the French medical community. Soon, he had his pick of any institution in the country. But there was only one place he wanted to go. In 1862, 37-year-old Jean-Martin Charcot returned to the Salpetriere. 
It was still known for housing outcasts, those society wanted to forget about. But Charcot couldn't forget them. He accepted a position in the general medicine department with physiologist Alfred Volpion. Together, they made daily rounds throughout the hospital. They had to cover a lot of ground. The staffing at the time was abysmal. For nearly 5,000 patients, the hospital only had one surgeon. On top of that, there were only seven doctors and a dozen or so interns. The mortality rate at the time was around 17%, meaning almost one out of five patients died in the hospital. Recent data suggests that the average in the United States is about 6.8%. But sometimes things have to hit rock bottom before they get better, and Charcot was doing his best to help the hospital climb out of its hole. First, he didn't blindly accept the go-to diagnoses of the day. Nearly all of the patients at the Salpetriere allegedly had a condition called hysteria. For thousands of years, hysteria was the go-to explanation when women behaved in unexpected or unusual ways. In ancient Greece, the father of medicine, Hippocrates, believed that women's uteruses moved throughout the body, triggering various symptoms. By the 1800s, hysteria diagnoses were given for a wide range of conditions. Anxiety, insomnia, hallucinations, paralysis, moodiness, and sexual promiscuity were all deemed hysterical. But Charcot didn't buy that explanation. He thought each patient he saw had a different ailment. After all, he noted different symptoms in each person. Some had trouble with movement, while others had what we'd recognize today as mental health conditions. To get to the root of what was really afflicting his patients, Charcot needed more information on each individual. That meant he had to change the way the hospital approached treatment altogether. Treating doctors usually only interacted with their patients during their rounds. With thousands to see in a short amount of time, that meant each physician only spent a few seconds with a person. Charcot wanted to change that, so he had his patients come to him. In his office, he would document everything he saw wrong with the person. On top of that, he also tried to put together a comprehensive history. From there, he could look for overall trends. So far as symptoms went, some of his hysteria patients had trouble lifting seemingly light objects. Others couldn't stop moving, even when they wanted to. But even these erratic spasms would be different from one person to the next. Some had a tremor in their arms, while others could only move in rigid, almost robotic spurts. Some said their symptoms had come on suddenly, while others said the condition had gradually increased over time. Each description was a clue. Each individual had a unique story that Charcot knew was important to their case. Unfortunately, most of his patients were beyond saving. Treatments or cures were years away. The best he could do in the short term was figure out what was wrong. Then, someday in the future, others who were suffering the same condition could maybe be saved. Charcot's observations in his office were just the first step. For the next, he'd need to wait for his patients to succumb to their diseases. Because when it comes to autopsies, the body 
holds a myriad of secrets. Coming up, Charcot identifies something never before seen in the human body. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. 40-year-old Jean-Martin Charcot was an accomplished doctor at the Salpêtrière in Paris, France. By 1865, he was treating thousands of patients who, to an outsider looking in, all suffered from so-called hysteria. But Charcot was open to other explanations, and he focused on getting to know his patients individually to better understand their illnesses. In early 1865, Charcot presented the case of a French woman, Marie, who was admitted to the hospital in previous years. When Charcot first met Marie, he noticed something different about her. She'd lost all function in her limbs. Charcot attributed this to a neurological condition, but she, unlike other patients, still had complete cognitive function. In other words, Marie could hold a coherent conversation, something that someone with hysteria shouldn't be able to do. Her muscles were in a weakened state, and she presented with contractures, a condition in which neglected muscles can become permanently shortened, making it difficult for joints to straighten. It usually happens in people who don't move around much. But Marie's condition couldn't be attributed to a sedentary lifestyle. Her muscles were wasting away because no matter how hard she tried, she just couldn't lift them. She reported that the condition had come on gradually. One day, she noticed weakness in her arm. Over the next few weeks, she'd gotten weaker still, but she hadn't known why. Before she knew it, this phenomenon had spread to her extremities, and she couldn't walk on her own. Her caretakers had sent her to the hospital. They had no idea what was wrong and hoped the doctors could help. Charcot was intrigued, and Marie became one of his regularly monitored patients. Every few weeks, Marie came into his office to be examined. Nothing that the staff did seemed to help the young woman, and it appeared that her condition was worsening. 
Charcot implemented the best tools at his disposal to track Marie's progression. Photography was in its infancy, but he used it to his full advantage. The camera could pick up more accurate details than a simple drawing. These pictures were useful because Charcot could reference them later in case he'd missed something during the original examination. While it was important for him to document Marie's visible symptoms, it was even more important for him to see what was happening inside her body. But to get a thorough examination, he had to wait for her to die. Sadly, that was just a matter of time. Eventually, Marie began to have trouble swallowing on her own. Charcot could see the pain behind her eyes as Marie wasted away from malnutrition. She was completely aware of what was happening to her. Her mind was still there, but her body was failing. Marie soon struggled to breathe. Her muscles in her chest barely had any strength to rise up and allow more air in. Each breath came in shallow and raspy. Her time was drawing to a close, and she knew it. Slowly, over a couple of days, she succumbed to her illness and passed away. Her death was heartbreaking, but Charcot was used to these sorts of tragedies. Almost all of his patients died, but he did his best to bring meaning out of their loss. That meant learning everything he could, even after death. Marie's body was brought into an operating theater where Charcot and an assistant performed an autopsy. They made an incision along her sternum and cracked open her chest cavity to get a look at her vital organs. Marie was thin from malnutrition, but her heart and other vital organs appeared to be in fine shape. With all of these preliminary observations made, Charcot moved on to what really interested him, her spinal column. In 1865, there was a huge debate about how the nervous system worked. No one doubted that the spinal cord was important to movement, but they still weren't exactly sure how everything worked together. Charcot meant to change that. Marie's body was repositioned so he could get a better look at her spine. Her bone structure looked fine, but he wanted to get a look at what was inside her spinal cord. He carefully cut into the spinal column, which is composed of 33 vertebrae. The vertebrae are a protective coating for the spinal cord, a bundle of nervous tissue that runs the entire length of the backbone. Charcot cautiously sawed through bone. Each pass had to be shallow and sure. If he cut too deep, he risked destroying valuable sections of the spinal cord. After what felt like hours, Charcot managed to cut away the spinal column. He finally had the chance to examine the exposed neural tissue. And there he was astonished to find gray-streaking lesions. Lesions are any kind of cut, break, or abnormal tissue, and they're not always a sign of illness. For example, the Mayo Clinic notes that scars and birthmarks are both kinds of lesions, except healthy people usually don't have any markings or visible damage to their spinal cords. Charcot was certain that these lesions had caused Marie's symptoms. This discovery was revolutionary. He sketched the abnormalities and described them at length in his records. He noted that they were clustered on the lateral column. In simple terms, 
If you were to look at the spinal column from above, you'd see it's shaped like a thick X. There are two branches in the front, called the anterior horn, and two in the back, the posterior horn. On either side of the X is the lateral column. Marie's lesions were mostly on the lateral column of the spine. This was difficult to explain. Charcot couldn't imagine what sort of disease would damage the front of the spine while leaving the middle and back alone. He was in uncharted territory. The field of neurology was still in its infancy, and there weren't any firm theories about what lesions on the spinal cord could mean. Charcot assumed the lesions had caused Marie's illness, but he knew that one individual's symptoms didn't make for a solid theory. He needed to repeat the findings, and that meant dissecting another person who died of the same condition. For the next four years, Charcot kept seeing patients, studying and documenting countless conditions. But all the while, he kept an eye open for someone with symptoms that matched Marie's. However, the illness was apparently very rare because he struggled to find patients who fit the profile. Not until 1869, when Charcot had another breakthrough. Unlike Marie, who'd gradually lost her mobility, this patient had presented with paralysis as a child. But when Charcot performed his usual autopsy, he noticed that this person had the same kind of lesions on their spinal cord. The one difference? They were on a different part of the spine, the anterior horn, or the front part of the X. Once again, Charcot didn't know where the lesions had come from or why they clustered around one spot, but every new piece of evidence helped him get closer to an answer. From these two examinations, Charcot developed a hypothesis. He theorized that the nervous system had two basic functions. First, the brain sent signals to the spinal cord. Second, the information traveled from the spinal cord to the rest of the body. At least, that was how things worked in a healthy person. But if those signals got interrupted, say, by lesions on the spinal cord, then a person wouldn't be able to move correctly. The location of the lesions determined the specific nature of the patient's impaired mobility. In 1874, he published his studies and dubbed the new disease amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. He was the first doctor to show a detailed link between these symptoms and an underlying physical condition, rather than purely a psychological one. Despite his revolutionary findings, Charcot was still missing a crucial piece of the puzzle. He didn't know what had caused the lesions. So the next step was to look at which traits his patients shared to see if he could find a common cause. Both of his patients had been women, but Charcot didn't think gender played a role in their illness. After all, he was working at the woman's wing of the hospital, so it was possible there were male patients he just wasn't seeing. After further research, he also ruled out race as a potential factor, but he still didn't know what did cause ALS. And without knowing the origin, he couldn't come up with a cure. Instead, he had to rely on trial and error. Charcot was a big proponent of using hypnosis to treat his neurological patients. And he was having limited success, but only in those that had what we know as psychological conditions. 
Sadly, since patients with ALS had lesions on their spinal cord, hypnotherapy did nothing for their symptoms. Although Charcot didn't know how to treat them, his discovery of the spinal lesions had been huge. At the end of his life in 1893, his findings were widely accepted all over the world. Since he'd been so diligent with his notes, physicians knew the symptoms to look for to diagnose patients with ALS. Most patients were like Marie. They'd start out feeling fine, but then slowly grow weak over time. They'd lose control over their muscles and deteriorate until they stopped breathing. Other patients lost control over their voluntary motor functions. While they grew weaker, they'd find themselves shaking or spasming. Some would start laughing or crying, unable to stop. Doctors could diagnose from these symptoms, but they still didn't know exactly what the lesions were doing. Nor could they figure out the significance of their location on the spinal column. Why did they appear in different places and trigger such different symptoms? While they looked for solutions, their patients were dying. Doctors remained powerless to stop the condition. On top of that, the general public was mostly unaware of the illness, so there was little pressure for more research. But that was all about to change in the spring of 1939. One of the greatest baseball players of all time was diagnosed with ALS, and he changed the dialogue around the disease forever. Coming up, all-star first baseman Lou Gehrig becomes the first face of ALS. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In 1874, 48-year-old Jean-Martin Charcot, a world-renowned doctor, published the first-ever study on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. The condition, caused by lesions on the patient's spinal column, leads to slow muscular deterioration, then ultimately death. While Dr. Charcot discovered the illness, he was unable to figure out what caused the lesions or how to cure them. But he laid a groundwork that countless neurologists would follow. Unfortunately, over 50 years of study, there were frustratingly few breakthroughs. And by the early 20th century, there was still no treatment or cure. While the disease was well known within the medical community, the vast majority of people had never heard of it. This relative obscurity made it nearly impossible to get proper funding for further research. But that was about to change, thanks to a celebrity's diagnosis. 
In the 1920s and 30s, Lou Gehrig was the first baseman for the New York Yankees and a member of what many fans called Murderer's Row because of their ability to crush the ball. He and his teammates were known for their offensive prowess at the plate and for winning numerous World Series titles. Gehrig was a fan favorite, but during the team's spring training in Florida in 1939, he could tell something was wrong. The power that he'd been so famous for had all but disappeared. He was often tired, but had no idea why. He desperately wanted to play every game and maintain his legendary starting streak. But he also didn't want to embarrass himself by getting easily winded or making a mistake on the field. Even with a disappointing spring training showing, he was given a starting spot once the regular season began. After all, Gehrig was a star, and his manager hoped that he would turn it around. In March, old reliable number four took his place at first base. Gehrig hoped that he was past whatever he'd experienced in the spring. Instead, he got worse all through the month. His dominance at the plate was gone for good, and people were noticing. The notoriously harsh New York City press questioned Gehrig's abilities. They noted that his hand-eye coordination was still on point, but Gehrig was struggling with power. He was hitting the ball, but it wasn't going anywhere. His teammates noticed how he was struggling, too. He was making rare errors at first, and was incredibly slow on routine defensive plays. On April 30th, 1939, Gehrig went 0 for 4 at the plate against the Washington Senators. A hitless game had been unthinkable the season before, but it was becoming his new normal. He couldn't stand to let the fans see him fade away. He knew he had to make a life-changing decision. On May 2nd, Gehrig arrived at the stadium and suited up for the game. He laced up his cleats and buttoned his jersey. He left the locker room and headed up the steps to the dugout. There, he approached the Yankees manager, Joe McCarthy, and said that he was benching himself. His starting streak was over at 2,130 games. But benching himself wasn't enough. His wife, Eleanor, noticed that something was very wrong with her husband at home and grew worried. Gehrig told her that he could feel weakness in his arms, and every so often, he had a tremor. As he worsened, she called the world-renowned Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. She told them of her husband's ailment and a few of his symptoms. The physicians agreed to run a few tests. Gehrig was a huge star, and they were happy to help him out. On June 13th, the Gehrigs flew to Minnesota. He and his wife were hopeful that they'd finally get a handle on whatever was going on. At the Mayo Clinic, Gehrig met with Dr. Paul O'Leary. He recounted the onset of his illness and his current symptoms. Sadly, O'Leary and other physicians at the clinic knew exactly what he was describing, and it didn't sound good. Everything lined up with what Charcot had documented over 70 years before. The problem was there were many other neurological diseases that fit Gehrig's description, too. And there was no test for ALS. That meant the doctors had to rule out the other conditions first. Gehrig spent nearly a week in Minnesota undergoing medical tests. His physicians determined it wasn't Parkinson's disease, 
or Huntington's disease, crossing off more possibilities every day. The list of what it could be was narrowing down to the worst possible outcome. It only took a week to get through all of the tests. On June 19, 1939, Gehrig's 36th birthday, the doctors informed the famous ballplayer of his diagnosis. Gehrig sad as he learned the grim news. He had ALS. While this disease was rare, it affected over 30,000 Americans a year. And there was no cure. Gehrig would just have to let it run its course. Dr. O'Leary, whom Gehrig would go on to form a relationship with, said that in many cases, patients only made it three years before they died from the illness. Gehrig was at a loss for words. He'd always been a hard worker, and he was used to his efforts paying off. He didn't like that there was nothing he could do now. Then O'Leary gave him even more bad news. He had to stop playing baseball altogether. While the activity wouldn't aggravate the condition, Gehrig was putting himself at risk every time he set foot on the field. His reaction times would only get slower, and a 100-mile-per-hour line drive at first base could do serious damage. Gehrig left the Mayo Clinic in quiet despair, but he trusted O'Leary's prognosis and knew there was no point fighting it. All he could do was make the best of his final years and say goodbye to the sport he loved. On June 21st, the Yankees announced Gehrig's diagnosis and retirement to the public. Fans and sports lovers all over the country were shocked and saddened. Gehrig was a hero. Things like this weren't supposed to happen to men with nicknames like Iron Horse. To soften the blow, the team announced that they'd be holding an appreciation day for Lou Gehrig. On July 4, 1939, fans filled Yankee Stadium to give Gehrig a proper send-off. Some of his old teammates, like Babe Ruth, were in attendance. Before the game started, Gehrig walked to a microphone in the middle of the field to give a farewell speech. He said, fans, for the last two weeks, you have been reading about a bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. There was hardly a dry eye in the house as Gehrig left the field for the last time. He was optimistic, even though his prognosis wasn't bright. He was going to make the best of the time he had. But he didn't have long at all. It was only two years later, on June 2nd, 1941, that Lou Gehrig died in his home in New York. It was a sad day for sports fans all over the country, but the famous ballplayer's fate wouldn't be in vain. Gehrig's death brought a pronounced awareness to ALS. He inspired countless donors and activists. More money than ever before was funneled into charities and research across the globe. Now better funded and supported, physicians threw themselves into their studies. The race was on. Every day, more people were diagnosed with ALS. The scientists had to find a cure, and fast. Lou Gehrig wouldn't be the only famous name to suffer the disease. Before long, ALS victims ranged from John Stone, the creator of Sesame Street, to physicist Stephen Hawking, as well as countless ordinary people. Moms, dads, siblings. 
New research was their only hope for survival, but perhaps the answer lay in a simple bucket of ice. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll look at modern research into ALS. We'll explore some of the theories on what may cause the disease and what scientists are doing to find a cure. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>